0: Welcome to Barbarians at the Gate podcast. It's a podcast of history, language, and culture broadcast from Beijing. And I'm here today with my co-host, David Moser, zooming in from OKC. How are you doing, David?
1: Oh, Pretty good. Things are pretty relaxed here on the surface, and I'm isolated here. So as far as I'm concerned, uh, this is the center of the universe. I'm doing great.
0: We're really pleased today to be joined on the podcast by Jeffrey Wasserstrom. So Jeff is the Chancellor's Professor of History at the University of California, Irvine. He not only writes for many academic journals, but he also contributes to the Chicago Times, New York Times, The Atlantic, the Los Angeles Review of Books. And I I think it's safe to say that that Jeff really is, for me anyway, the the model of of what a public intellectual should be, someone who both does a great deal of, of important scholarly research, but also makes that research accessible to a general audience as well and bridges both worlds in a way that I think is is really admirable and something, again, that I've tried to emulate in my own really, really, really small way in, in my own career. He's the author of many of my favorite and most often recommended books on China, including, along with Maura Cunningham, China in the 21st Century, What Everyone Needs to Know, Eight Juxtapositions, China Through Imperfect Analogies, from Mark Twain to Manchukuo, and most recently, Vigil, Hong Kong on the Brink. And you're here today to talk to us about your latest book, uh, which is about the Boxers.
2: Yeah, it's a pleasure to be here, and thanks for that very generous uh, introduction.
1: So Jeff, uh, just just dive in here. There's, uh, this is a usual historian's problem, which is the Boxers' Rebellion and, and all aspects of Chinese history have been covered so much. By so many people um, in such great and so many great versions that the question is uh, what is the focus of your book? Uh, can you give us a kind of a thumbnail sketch of how your book is going to differentiate itself from all the other great books on the subject?
2: Yeah, it's, it's a tricky question because there are, um, there are two really wonderful prize-winning books from the 80s and 90s that I think about a lot, Joseph Escherich's The Origins of the Boxer Uprising and Paul Cohen's History in Three Keys. And I mean, one of the clear things that I think differentiates what I'm doing is a lot of the books written in English about the boxers end the story uh, where the credits roll for the Hollywood film, 55 Days at Peking, which is basically when the foreigners who were trapped inside the legation quarter of Beijing are freed when this allied army comes in and uh, lifts the siege, defeats the boxers and the Qing who have backed the boxers, then that's where the story largely ends. And that's really just the midway point in a lot of the Chinese stories about the boxer crisis, in which what follows is then months of a military occupation of North China, in which a lot of atrocities are committed by um, Western troops and uh, troops from Japan and Russia as well. So, one of the differences is that I just want to give both halves of that that crisis uh, attention. But the other thing about this book that 's different is it 's not really about the events as much as it is about the way the stories of the events are told, the competing narratives between Chinese and Western accounts, but also the differences among Western accounts of it and One of the things that I 've become really fascinated with, and this is relevant to the present as well is that even when people around the world seem to be following a single news story, if we think about the story part of the news story, they actually are interpreting it, interpreting it in very different ways because of the way it relates to stories they already know, things that have happened in the past that they think the current crisis is similar to. And that leads to some really radically different ways of thinking about 1900, even within the West. Americans and Britons um, thought of the events while they were taking place very differently and how the events are remembered later uh, are remembered differently because of which parts of history uh, people thought were relevant at the time and also what other things going on in the world were seen as related. To what was going on in china it's a globally minded book it it moves more more across the world than some other accounts do and it moves more through time by thinking about what historical precedents were seen as relevant in 1900 and also the legacies 1900 has had afterwards
0: you know one of the one of the things when i teach about the boxers one of the challenges i have is What do we call this? And the name of your title of the book that you're working on is Ghosts of 1900, Stories of China in the Year of the Boxers. And that seems to get us out of this, uh, kind of get around this debate. Uh, Is it a boxer uprising, boxer rebellion? I often call it the boxer war. I'm curious your thoughts on that and maybe why you avoided choosing any one of those terms for the, the working title of the book.
2: Yeah. So there, I mean, I joke about the fact that boxer rebellion is a perfectly good term, except they didn't box and they weren't rebels. You know, they, they did use martial arts techniques and one of their names for themselves in Chinese, refers to righteous and harmonious fists. And some of their critics call them the fist bandits in Chinese, fei. So boxer, boxer is okay. You know, it's not great because it, it conjures up images, including sort of bad cartoons about showing
1: them as if they had boxing gloves or something. But boxer is okay. I think they called it, sh- they- I think you should mention, they sh- they called it uh, the real full term, I guess, was shadow boxing. that. They- people saw these these martial arts moves and said they were doing shadow boxing and i think that's where the term comes from, if I'm not mistaken.
2: Yeah, that's part of it. So, you know, the boxing part, they did put on these martial arts displays to help draw people, draw crowds that they then sort of proselytized to. So, you know, the martial arts was important. The problem is really rebellion. Rebellion suggests that they were trying to overthrow the dynasty, when in fact, their enemies were the Christians. Their enemies were the foreigners. They appealed, they claimed that they wanted to basically restore China to control by the dynasty and help the dynasty out, that they were kind of loyalist militia. So rebellion um, has a real problem there. Uprising works better. You know, Joe Escherich uses that in um, his Origins of the Boxer Uprising. The problem there is that by the end of the summer, the uprising is over, and yet the crisis continues. And so I think uprising can kind of lead you to downplay the, the military occupation afterwards. So that's why just calling it the year of the boxers suggests all of 1900, or actually a little bit from sort of January. January of 1900 through February of 1901, which was the gungza year from lunar new year to lunar new year. That is how it's often referred to in Chinese texts. Some Chinese texts refer to it by referring to the group, but some just refer to it as the chaos or the tragedy of the gungza Nian. And so I kind of like playing with that year of the boxers as a way to emphasize the before and the after both being important.
1: Maybe maybe talk a little bit about how it plays out differently in China, and maybe some some historical parallels that we Westerners would not even consider, but but the Chinese might, or a, a historian, someone like you who finds interesting juxtapositions, <laughs> would be good at this. I think.
2: <laughs> so yeah, I I mean the film Fifty Five Days at, at Peking is just wonderfully uh, over the top in many ways, and it's basically a Western. It really casts it as a kind of Western. The boxers end up looking a lot like Native Americans in classic Westerns. And that was a trope of how I mentioned that the British and the Americans saw the events a bit differently while they were taking place in 1900, thinking about comparisons and juxtapositions. In the British press, there was a lot of talk about the boxers being similar to the people who had risen up in India and had trapped some foreigners in a siege in 1857. So in the siege of uh, Beijing, there was a lot of discussion as, oh, this is like Lucknow, what people experienced uh, 43 years before. But in the U.S., there was some discussion of it as being like a ghost dance rising, because the ghost dance rising had um, Native Americans who thought they could make themselves invulnerable to bullets, which the boxers did as well, thought they could call spirit soldiers down, like the boxers did as well. And actually, before 55 Days of Peking, long before it, Buffalo Bill's Wild West show in 1901 put on a reenactment of um, a battle in China in which Native American cast members dressed up to play the boxers and were defeated. And here you had the ending, the kind of Hollywood ending was first put on in Madison Square Garden with Buffalo Bill and company, where the white men on horses defeat the Native Americans dressed up to be boxers and the American flag goes up on stage and the crowd uh, cheers. There's a wonderful article about this by by John Haddad, The the Wild West Show Goes East, I think it's called. And he points out that one member of the audience wasn't there to cheer. It was Mark Twain, who actually thought that the boxers had um, a certain justification to want to kick the foreigners out of their country. And so he left even though he, he and Buffalo Bill were friends because he didn't want to see this, what he saw as a travesty of the story of what had happened in China. One way the story is told in China is there are different ways it's told at different periods. So under Mao, it was told as the boxers were heroes. You know, they had right on their side, they were trying to kick the imperialists out of, out of China. They didn't have advanced enough views of um, understanding of capitalism and imperialism to lead a successful revolution, but they were essentially heroes. In later periods, sort of from the reform period on, the kind of anti-modernization side of the boxers, the boxers didn't just kill Christians, they also tore up railroad tracks and tore down telegraph poles because they had some beliefs that those kind of Western objects were destroying the feng shui of the the land, were disrupting the natural order. So the the boxers aren't easy to square with the kind of vision of China as a modernizing uh, technological state now. But the invasion by the foreign armies is now what's really emphasized as the terrible part of the story. So what you have in a lot of um, Chinese versions of the story that you would learned about, say, in school on the mainland now, you kind of have a certain amount of attention to the boxers, and they're, they come across as a group that had strange ideas, but a justifiable grievance. And then you have the foreign armies come in, the Bagua Jun, the eight allied armies because of eight different foreign powers contributing soldiers that then carried out an invasion and committed atrocities and did terrible things uh, to the people of China. So you end up with something if people are saying now that something's happening in China that is reminiscent of 1900. If you've grown up or you're familiar with the Western story, you might think that what's familiar about 1900 might be xenophobia Phobia on the part of um, hyper-nationalist young Chinese who you say well, are, are hating the West and are irrationally like the boxers. But you might have from a Chinese side that when foreign powers are treating China unfairly or the Chinese people unfairly, that's a reminiscent thing of 1900. And um, I had a direct experience of this, one of the only times I've been in China when anything dramatic happened. I'm usually there at fairly unimportant times in history. But I was there in 1999 when NATO bombs had hit the Chinese embassy in Belgrade, killing three Chinese people. And there were protests against American and British imperialism because NATO was carrying out these bombing raids against Serbia to push back against uh, ethnic cleansing in Kosovo. But China was an Ally of Serbia. And so this was actually seen as NATO, uh, a group that has shares some of the same characters as that Bagolian Jun, eight Allied armies, term, and shares some of the same members as that eight Allied army. That the idea in the Chinese press was this was foreign powers getting together to transgress against another country's sovereignty, and Chinese people were dying again. So one way that the Belgrade bombing was understood in Chinese discourse was it's like 1900. Here we are almost 100 years later and still the kind of abuses are going on that happened in 1900. So angry young Chinese gathered outside the American embassy and the British embassy. The American ambassador was trapped inside the embassy for a certain amount of time. Uh, At the high point of the Boxer uprising or most tense moment, foreign diplomats were trapped inside their um, their houses. So USA Today said, look, this is almost 100 years after the boxers, and China still is doing the same kind of thing. And the boxers were supported by the Qing dynasty. Um, The protesters who were out on the streets denouncing American imperialism were being backed by the Chinese Communist Party. So you could see how there was a way in which you could squeeze that into the 1900 narrative, but it's totally different 1900 narratives on both sides that were being invoked. So you had this odd moment of of people saying, isn't it kind of like 1900, even though we're almost 100 years later? Uh, But what they meant was something radically different.
0: Jeff I have a question maybe this is a it's a teaching question you know I'm sure that many of your students over the last few years, especially for modern Chinese history courses, have been from China or from Hong Kong or from Taiwan. And I'm always curious, you know, when you're teaching this in a a lecture or you're going over, say, an event like the boxers, and of course, there are different interpretations and people, of course, are coming out of different educational background. In the case of American students, this may be the first time they're ever hearing that this even happened. But obviously, for students who grew up in Asia, particularly in China, this has been something that's been part of their education. And media landscape since they could, you know, t- since they were aware. Have Have you ever had any discussions, or has there been any moments in the classroom where you've had to interpret, if you will, you know, or, or, or maybe a better way of putting it would be to kind of um, reconcile some of these different interpretations?
2: That's a really great question. I I don't get that many students from um, China, even though Irvine has a lot from the mainland. Um, They tend to take science subjects and they have to take American history. And I think the, it's a required course. So there's a lot of kind of, Discussion of radically different views of things. I'd say the biggest thing that I I deal with when I'm dealing with students, specifically from the mainland, this is a different issue than um, Taiwan and Hong Kong. I think is really it's a more meta question. It's getting across the idea that what studying history means is studying competing interpretations of an event, as opposed to figuring out what the right line on, on an event is in a certain sense. So that's I think the the challenge. And and so one thing I try to do is bring up examples from both the American past and the Chinese past, even if it's a Chinese history course, to try to get that across, to say that often people within any country only he, only learn part of a story, and that there, there, there are multiple ways of seeing virtually any story, and that even people who are who Americans might grow up learning about as heroes, there might be some parts of their lives that are kind of brushed under the rug. I can give, I give some examples. And one of the examples I give to try to make this not being that China's the only place that gets it wrong. I say that, you know, in the United States, when you're growing up, you hear that Martin Luther King was a heroic figure. And Martin Luther King is considered a heroic figure uh, in China, too. So this can be a kind of meeting ground. And I'll say, well, but when young people in school in the United States hear about Martin Luther King, they tend to only hear about his I have a dream speech and they hear about his views of racial equality, which now the government has said he was in step with what the American uh, story really is. But what often gets brushed under the rug is his intense criticism of the Vietnam War and his actually intense criticism of some things that we might describe as kind of capitalism and his concern with with poverty. And so I say, you know, actually, then one of the things about studying history in college is even with something that you think you know about, you want to say, well, what else was going on? And you want to discover, well, there is a Martin Luther King holiday, but there was a period when people were denouncing Martin Luther King for being anti-American. So what's going on? How? What, what's, what are the stakes in this? And then that can be a way to lead into, so let's take an event you know from Chinese history, and let's think about what are the sides of that story that don't fit in with the narrative that the Communist Party has told you in your textbooks growing up.
0: I just want to follow up on that for a moment, too. How is the narrative different in schools in Taiwan and Hong Kong versus how this narrative is, is portrayed in, uh, in China?
2: That's a really great question it's actually something i'll um I'll dig into now that you've you've asked it i've been I, I haven't focused on that that so much i mean I know that there's a way in which uh the way that the terms get used in popular discourse now are quite quite different that there is a way in which um for example there wasn't a per- there there wasn't a period of Romanticizing the boxers as kind of pure heroes. There was more of a tradition in both uh, Taiwan and Hong Kong of thinking of. The boxer side of it, the boxerism, the way more like the way it's thought about in the West as a group that was anti-modern and unscientific. So you actually have a fissure, um, a fissure on the boxers that you can go back to the May Fourth Movement, which is something I know you both thought about and uh, had written about. During the May Fourth Movement, um, the May Fourth Movement was a movement about science and democracy, and also about anti-imperialism. Uh, so radicals of uh, different kind of varieties around 1918, 1919, some of them said, what we need to do is completely differentiate ourselves from, from boxerism, which was jui, anti-foreignism, xenophobia. We need to take the best ideas from the West and combine them. We need to use the best ideas that are circulating in the world. And the boxers, that kind of rejection, the outside world, is antithetical to what we're doing. When the protests against imperialism during the May 4th movement in 1919 took place, the students, for the most part, were engaging in boycotts and other nonviolent actions, whereas the boxers had been violent. So they really tried to differentiate themselves. The Japanese press said, here are people criticizing foreigners. They're like boxers. The British and the Americans said, no, this is nothing like the boxers. Um, You're really just trying to slander these educated, enlightened youths. A few years later, though, there was an anti-British movement, the May 30th movement in Shanghai, which was, again, largely nonviolent. But the British said, oh, these youths, they're just like the boxers. So they're kind of using this taint of boxers. So whoever was being challenged to discredit it tried to say it's just like the boxers. But among Chinese intellectuals, the tendency was among the May 4th generation to distance yourself from the boxers. And to, to maybe say that, yes, the invasion that took place at the end was some, some bad things were done by the foreign troops. But you focus on the mistakes that the boxers made that that, that created the whole problem. But the Chinese Communist Party comes along and there's influence by the anti-imperialism of, of Leninism and so forth. And there starts to be a reevaluation of the boxers to see them as flawed, but to place them within this kind of larger narrative of, of imperialism. And you actually have a key figure in the May 4th movement, Chen Duxio, who writes a piece in 1918 in which he's very critical of the boxers, And then a few years later, writes another piece after he's become a founder of the Communist Party that talks about the two, the mistaken views of the boxers and is a kind of self-criticism of sort of saying, now, wait, let's not put the blame on the wrong side here. Uh, imperialism and foreign impredations against China are the problem. So you end up in a way, you can see those two strands. Taiwan, the story is told more in that sort of early Chen Duxiu moment where uh, you've got this kind of focus on the need for enlightenment as opposed to uh, xenophobia. And, you know, there, there is a critique of foreign aggression against China, but you emphasize distancing yourself from, from the boxers. So that would be part of the story. Of uh bringing Taiwan and Hong kong in
1: okay so jeff let's let's wrap it up with a question that attempts to sort of bring all of that to the present time because we are in this very special moment and Chinese. Uh, history that has a, this cyclical quality, and I, there's something that's been going around the internet about this uh, 60-year cycle, the Gengzi Yan that we talked about, uh, with the, the, the boxer indemnity is referred to as the Gengzi Pei Kuan, right? Uh, but there's this this notion, this 60, 60-year cycle, which overlaps with the with other cycles, the the, the Ten Gang Di these ten heavenly stems and 12 terrestrial branches and the, uh, the five elements, the, the Wu Xing, And that the, a particular uh, particularly terrifying and ominous year are these, uh, they call it the metal rat years, the, the, the years that correspond with the year of the rat, and also the metal element in the five elements. And some of those uh, events have been 1840, the Britain uh, in- initiated the First Opium War, 1900 of course is the Boxer Rebellion and 1960 was the Great Leap Forward that was a guns and guns and yan and then now 2020 is the coronavirus and it's another yan. You want to talk a little bit about some some correspondences or juxtapositions, as you say, between the Boxer incident and the coronavirus outbreak. Yeah,
2: I think it's great to bring that up. It's another sort of views of the past are all can be altered in different places. I mean, we find it normal in um, the West to think about what was going on 50 years ago or what was going on 100 years ago or what was going on 200 years ago. And it's equally common to think in a Chinese mindset to think of 60 years or 120. Though actually now in China, you think of both. I mean, centennials matter, and so do 120th anniversaries. So you have these timescales. So this would have been an interesting time to think back to 1900, no matter what, because of uh, 120 years. And I think that the way in which, um, so a few years ago, it was the 120th anniversary of another devastating event for for China, the loss to Japan in the war of 1894-95. And so when that anniversary, 120th, came around, there were speeches given, let's remember what happened 120 years ago and how totally different the world is now. Look how far we've gone from then. That was a time when Japan was ascendant and China was descending. Now that could never happen again because China is once again ascendant. And so this was bound to be a year for reflections, but then this unexpected, really dark turn in in the world took place. And so it's spun in a couple of different ways, uh, again. So there, uh, there is a piece that's been translated uh, with great detail on the China Heritage website, a wonderful website for getting insights into what's being discussed by Chinese intellectuals that brings up the parallel, one way, a kind of liberal critique of the current order in China that invokes this 120th anniversary and pays attention to the fact that what was a problem 120 years ago? You had an autocratic set of leaders in Beijing who were making really dangerous decisions that had bad consequences to really simplify it a great deal and says that this should be seen as an uh, as a warning of kind of recurrent traps in chinese history the great leap famine too was an autocratic regime making bad decisions and causing a great deal of suffering but there's another way in which the kind of looking back 120 years can be seen differently which is that right now there are calls, uh, starting to be calls in the West for reparations from China, from the Chinese government to make up for the suffering caused by COVID-19. And one thing that that could bring up from the government's point of view is, well, well, look, this is something that's a global problem. There are a lot of countries making mistakes. And you want this to be just like in, in the Boxer Protocol, where after enormous amounts of suffering caused by different people, the only people who paid were the Chinese government. Once again, it's it's another version of that 1999 thing where you could say that um, 120 years ago now rather than 99 years ago is a relevant point of contact, but what it means can be radically different that way. Meanwhile, in the West, nobody that I know of is really thinking about 1900 isn't the go-to year for thinking about COVID-19. The go-to years are things like 1918, 1919. Or sort of strangely in America, nine eleven or Pearl Harbor, and this is, I think, for me, the meta thing which makes me kind of more energized about the book I'm writing than I've been for a while. Is it once again shows you that even when it seems that the world is all watching the following the same story, they're processing it through radically different ideas about history and the stories they tell that leads in very different directions, and that once again we have it's kind of an illusion to think that we're all following the same story because we're we're understanding in such different ways. In England, they talk about the Blitz right now as a referent point. In India, there's some discussion of of famines in the past. So it's it's something that even though there's a shared part to the experience, that we're swept up in it, that the way we make sense of it as human beings who make sense through stories and make sense of the history and the culture we bring to it can spin off in all these different directions.
1: Okay. Thanks, Jeff. That's a fantastic overview. We certainly look forward to the book when it comes out. Here at the end of the show, we usually have recommendations. I don't know if you have one, Jeff, uh, but why don't we start with Jeremiah? What's your recommendation?
0: One of the questions I get asked a lot by uh, people who are traveling over to China or groups that are coming here is, is there one book I should read on the plane? And of course, there are so many books we can read about China, but the one book I generally recommend, if for no other reason, it's really concise and Basically, takes a plain ride to read. Is Jeff Wasserstrom's and Maura Cunningham's China in the 21st Century what everyone needs to know? It is a great FAQ on all things modern China, or really even going back even further than that. Everything from who was this Confucius guy to what were the Boxers all about to what was Mao's deal. If you're if you're traveling to China or you have friends who are traveling to China and they want uh, uh, something to handy to look at on their way over here, and to really get a, a sense of the country before they land. Um, it's now, Jeff, I want to say it, it's in its fourth edition, am I correct? Third,
2: third. There'll have to be a post-COVID edition. Let's wait till we get post-COVID to third edition.
0: Okay, third edition. Um, highly recommended for, for anyone traveling here.
2: Yeah, I'll give, I'll give a totally different kind of recommendation, which is that, you know, with the boxers so much on my mind and COVID-19 and the recriminations going back and forth between China and the United States right now, it's a, it's a very ugly moment. So I find a real need for something beautiful that speaks to the potential for kind of connecting between uh, cultures across these divides. So while there's some books that do that, what I'm drawn to is the new album that, that Wu Fei and Abigail Washburn have produced put out especially the song on it where they blend together the river the water is wide and a Chinese boatman's song and it's just a blending of musical traditions, voices it's it's just a gorgeous uh, work and it just came out in April the CD dropped It's a kind of go- to listen now when I, I want to feel less depressed about the state of the world.
1: Great yeah that's a fantastic recommendation everything they, they do nowadays is just so fantastic and it is that great blend of, of China and the West. Um, I'm going to throw away my original recommendation and kind of expand on, on what Jeff mentioned toward the end there about the article that was published uh, and an, uh, translated and annotated by Jeremy Barme. I just want to focus, uh, sort of highlight the the author, who uh, is a woman named Si uh, Zhongyun, uh, and the title of the article, An Old Anxiety in a New Era. We should really put this in the uh, recommendations that we, on the webpage. I want to just highlight the uh, Tzuong Yun, which in a in a tweet I referred to her as a guobao, a sort of a national treasure. This this is a, a really amazing article and of course the translation by Jeremy Barme is amazing. He he is such an amazing translator. Just reading through and comparing the English and Chinese is a is sort of a semester course in Chinese-English translation techniques. It's, it's, it's really amazing. But I really recommend this article because she published the article under a pseudonym Zhonghua Nuxian Sheng, which, of course, Xian just meaning teacher, but Bar May translates it, I think, as a learned woman of China or something like that. But she, she does what we were talking about. She draws really evocative, sometimes kind of agonizing parallels between the, the kinds of xenophobic reactions and nationalistic sentiments that in China that we were talking about during the Boxer Rebellion and some of the more nationalistic and racial divisions that the COVID-19 crisis has produced. So it's a very, very powerful political statement. It pulls no punches. It's really, really worth reading. And also, it means something to me because, actually, I only met Zi last year and was able to interact with her. But I have known her younger sister, Zizhong Yuan, for more than 30 years. She's, she's gone now, but she was a very dear friend, collaborated with me on the translation of Douglas Hofstadter's book, Gürtel Escher, Bach, into Chinese. And it turns out that uh, her older sister, uh, Zizhong Yun, was the first one to have brought That book into the PRC and sort of was instrumental in having it translated. It's 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 a very very powerful article and I think extremely well written and I strongly recommend it. And also to Google her writing, she's a very prolific writer and is out on the web and, and has given many influential speeches. I can't re- recommend her too highly.
0: Well, thank you, David. And thanks again, Jeff, for for coming on the podcast. I hope that you're staying safe and productive where, where you are and uh, hope to have you on again in the future. When is the book uh, scheduled to come out?
2: So I'm doing I'm doing fine here in the California SAR as I like to call it, where um, things are going somewhat differently than the way they are in the the messages coming out of the Capitol. So you know an SAR as it should work. The book I'm really determined to finish it during this uh, time of sheltering in place. So with luck, it'll come out late in 2021 when people will be eager to read about something that is. Um, let's hope we have. COVID-19 in the rear window and we're ready to look back further in time, but also can put the anniversary of the Gungza year as a kind of ending point for the the story I want to
0: tell. Well, great. Thank you very much. And thank you all for listening to Barbarians at the Gate. We'll talk to you again very soon. And from all of us here to all of you out there, stay safe.